Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. This is the very first episode of a brand new episode format series called the Cardio Nerds Case Reports, hashtag CNCR, which we had the pleasure of introducing with Dr. Julia Grapsa, Editor-in-Chief of Jack Case Reports in episode 43. The CNCR episodes will shine light on the hidden curriculum of medical storytelling in this new, fun, engaging, and educational format. We learn together while discussing a fascinating case. Each case discussion will be followed by an ECPR, or an expert cardio nerd perspective and review segment, for a more nuanced teaching from a genuine content expert. We truly believe that hearing about a patient is the singular theme that unifies everyone at every level, from the student to the professor emeritus. We hope you love the series. In upcoming episodes, we will be teaming up with the ACC Fellows and Training section for a collaboration among fellowship programs. We'll get into the details later with Dr. Noshin Riza, so stay tuned. We CardioNerds want to thank you for subscribing and supporting the CardioNerds platform. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach, all the while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com forward slash CardioNerds. Every little bit goes a long way. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. The podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you are about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. Without further ado, let's dive in to today's case. We are so excited for you to join us for our very first CardioNerds case reports. And to get us started with our inaugural episode, we are joined by Drs. Travis Howard and Zach Iljovene from the Cleveland Clinic to discuss a case that is indicative of the times. Before we dive in, maybe, Zach, you could introduce yourself? Hi, cardio nerds. My name is Zach Iljovene. I'm a third-year cardiology fellow at Cleveland Clinic. I did my residency training at Duke. I'm actually from Cleveland originally. I'm interested in advanced heart failure transplant and cardiac critical care, and right now just having a fun time hanging at home with my son, Luca, and the wife, Claire. And, and for everyone that listens to our show, of course, you'll recognize Zach. This is his third time joining us, so clearly we are definitely fans. Travis, do you want to introduce yourself? Hey, Cardio Nerds. I'm Travis Howard. I'm one of the second-year cardiology fellows at the Cleveland Clinic. I'm from Florida originally, did my residency training at Northwestern in Chicago, and I'm interested in interventional cardiology and very excited to be here. Travis. This is our first time meeting, so this is really exciting. Can you tell me what your favorite hangout spot is in Cleveland? I haven't been there yet, and I've been desperate to come. What's your favorite chill spot? You know, I think it, it depends on the season, Dan, but right now, my wife and I are loving Edgewater Beach. Kayaking, there's a nice dog park there. It's really lovely. That's fantastic. So for this setting, I envision us sitting on the beach, and there are people passing around, but it's a HIPAA-compliant space, and we'll discuss this case there. Try not to get sand in too many places that we don't want it to be. And will I add that we're all wearing masks and we're at least six feet away from each other? <laughs> all right, Travis, I, I hear you had an interesting case recently. I did, I did. Wait, wait, wait. I forgot my beer. Hang on a second. All right, <laughs> hey, let's go, me, guys. Amit, grab me one. <laughs> okay, so we have a 49-year-old male, 
no chronic medical conditions, is currently incarcerated, presented to an outside hospital with one to two weeks of fevers, myalgias, and shortness of breath, was found to be in shock, requiring vasopressors, so he was transferred to Cleveland Clinic for further management. His past medical history is notable for prior gunshot wound to the abdomen. He has psoriasis, but not on immunosuppression. Prior tobacco and alcohol use. No known medications. No family history. No prior surgeries. And no known drug allergies. In terms of social history, he runs 5 to 10 miles per day. In terms of his vitals, he's afebrile. His blood pressure is 102 over 75 on norepinephrine. His heart rate is 110, sinus tachycardia. Respiratory rate is 40, and he's 97% on Romare. On exam, he's uncomfortable, no crackles on his lung exam. He's tachycardic, as we mentioned, 206, whole systolic murmur. His abdomen's soft, non-tender, and he has cool lower extremities that are edematous. So in terms of our patient's labs, his CBC was notable for a white count of 30, hemoglobin of 12.4. Chemistry demonstrated multiple metabolic derangements with a sodium of 131, potassium of 5.7, and a bicarbonate of 10. His creatinine was also notably 3.2. In terms of his LFTs, he had significantly elevated transaminases with his AST of 3,000 and an ALT of 1,200. Also notably is a significant coagulopathy with an INR of 1.7. His troponin 0.4, BMP is greater than 70,000, and his lactate is 9. In terms of his inflammatory markers, his ferritin is almost 40,000. His fibrinogen is 750, and his D-dimer is 13,000. His CRP was 32, and an IL-6 of 405 is central venous saturation of 30%, and he is COVID positive. And Travis, let me ask you real quick, was that a central venous oxygen from a PA catheter, or was that from like a triple lumen or other central venous catheter? A triple lumen. We did not have a swan in at the time. Okay, gotcha. So then his chest x-ray, notable for some lower lug opacities, but no pneumothorax, and no obvious pneumonia. So EKG is sinus tachycardia, left axis deviation, and Q waves inferiorly. He also had an incomplete right bundle branch block. Travis, thanks for going over that case. There's so much to unpack here. And I'll say that Dr. Steve Shu, who was a former CardioNerds expert on the LVAD episode, once asked me when I was a resident in the CCU, Amit, what is the scariest rhythm in the ICU? And of course, my mind immediately went to VF arrest, but he said, actually, the scariest rhythm for me is sinus tachycardia. And so there are already a lot of features in this case that should raise a lot of red flags here. But one being that he is clearly in a shock state with sinus tachycardia. He requires a vasopressor to meet adequate perfusion pressure in his end organ injury. But specific to COVID-19, there's a lot of data now that shows that mortality is very much associated with markers of inflammation and injury. And specifically what caught my attention here were the troponin elevation and the D-dimer elevation. And we know that mortality goes up with elevations in both. In some reports, there are ideas of using D-dimers as a marker for how to approach prophylactic anticoagulation. And with regards to troponin elevation, we should certainly talk about the causes of troponin elevation and COVID-19 illness. But we know that regardless of the etiology, that a troponin elevation tracks with a much higher morbidity and mortality in this population. What made you guys check for COVID-19 in this case? I think you have to put this in context. This was early May. And at the time, there was a large coronavirus outbreak at that prison. In fact, I think it accounted for most of the cases in the state. And so immediately when we heard the case, we were already highly suspicious for COVID-19. And Amit, a couple other points that I think are important, especially early on in medical training, I think one of the most important things you can do is try and recognize sick or not sick. And when I say that, I mean, how sick is this patient? How quickly do we have to act? 
for this gentleman, I think the cat's kind of already out of the bag. You're receiving him from an outside hospital uh, already on vasopressors. But a few things that were striking to me in in this relatively young gentleman who's been running five to 10 miles per day prior to this now has a central venous set of 30% with all of these other coagulopathies and acute liver injury, acute kidney injury. I think if you're unfamiliar with interpreting central venous sats, or if you have a PA catheter, a mixed venous sat, 30% is very low for somebody who was normal before. If you see these numbers a lot and you're used to seeing them in someone who has chronic heart failure, uh, a mixed venous in the 40s, 50s that maybe dips down into the 30s when they're decompensated or moving towards shock is not uncommon. But in somebody who was running 10 miles just a few weeks ago, this is a profound change. And so that should really raise your suspicion along with everything else that there's definitely a a pump issue going on that's underlying some of this shock state. Yeah, Zach, and I'll just add, this case really highlights this really impressive inflammatory presentation where he's coming in with this white count that's just incredibly elevated, inflammatory markers through the roof, typical patterns for COVID inflammation. And it's very easy to go down the pathway of sepsis, which is more of that SERS component to the hyperperfusion but you generate a lot of evidence to support a low flow state, kind of a cardiac involvement. And I agree. There's a lot going here for saying, well, one, clearly the patient is in shock with multi-organ injury, but also the etiology of the shock is likely a cardiogenic picture with cool extremities and a increased peripheral oxygen extraction, giving us a low central venous sap. Now, just thinking about the troponin elevation in the context of COVID-19, we think about troponin elevation as a marker of injury. And so within the context of COVID-19, and really in general, we can think about the injury being either an ischemic injury or a non-ischemic injury. With regards to an ischemic injury, we know from prior reports, as well as our episode with Dr. Steve Shulman, that there is certainly a well-defined association between respiratory viruses and type 1 acute coronary syndromes. But there's also the propensity of getting type 2 injury from uh, supply-demand mismatch. And this may be the link of why patients with a history of cardiovascular risk factors tend to be more affected with COVID-19. But on the other end of the spectrum, you can also imagine a non-ischemic injury from a variety of sources, either bystander injury from a systemic hyperinflammatory syndrome that this patient clearly has an elevated CRP and uh, elevated IL-6 levels. And also, you can consider microvascular damage, direct immune infiltration with a myocarditis, a direct viral injury itself. And so there are a variety of mechanisms that we can see troponin elevation. And so moving forward, we are certainly going to be looking to address the acute cardiogenic shock itself, but also in the back of our mind, we have to consider what the etiologies are. And so Amit, you asked me earlier why our suspicion was so high. And I think just to allude back to that, there's a nice research letter in JAMA from July that, that clearly highlights this point in the fact that the case rate in uh, U.S. prisons is dramatically higher than the general U.S. population, in fact, about 5.5 times higher. And on top of that, the adjusted death rate is almost three times higher. And so continuing on with the case, in terms of our advanced diagnostics, we had a bedside echocardiogram from the day of admission that shows a mildly dilated left ventricle with an EF of 20 to 25%. Notably, also had a dilated right ventricle with moderate to severe reduced function and severe TR. In fact, his leaflets were not collapsing at all. 
and he also had mild to moderate MR. So let's reflect on this echo for a second, because it's kind of interesting. So you have this echo with a clearly reduced LV function, and that is something that makes this case already more unique than the run-of-the-mill COVID presentations in the ICU. A lot of times we see RV. But what did you guys make of the severe TR with this dilated RV with reduced function? What was the thought process behind that? And also with a moderate severe MR, where do you think that came from? Yeah, great question, Dan. I think we'll talk about this later, but when you think of myocarditis, one of the first questions you ask yourself is how big is the ventricle? And that's important because normal sized ventricles generally indicate an acute process, whereas a dilated or enlarged ventricle generally indicates a more chronic or subacute process. And so already when this patient came, he had told us that he was running five or 10 miles per day. So we figured probably no underlying cardiomyopathy, but the fact that he had this uh, already dilated right ventricle and mildly dilated left ventricle was very concerning for a process that had been at least going on subacutely, if not chronically, and had not been diagnosed yet. Yeah, those are all really good points. Travis, and, you know, just this echocardiogram itself really helps guide our next few steps here, because this patient right now is sort of in the crashing and burning phase with liver enzymes in the multiple thousands, creatinine above three, lactate of almost 10. And so we anticipate in this patient with a central venous stat in the 30s that we may need to activate mechanical circulatory support. And so whenever we're thinking about MCS, we have to think, what are we supporting, right? Which ventricle is involved? And does a patient need oxygenation as well if the lungs are involved? And this patient with both left-sided and right-sided cardiac involvement, it's really going to impact our choice of MCS devices. In terms of other advanced diagnostics, he did have a CT scan done just prior to presenting to our hospital. And surprisingly, it did not show any lung parenchymal disease. The only notable finding was cardiomegaly. So really, Travis, what you're highlighting is a patient with COVID-19, an acute profound cardiac injury in a cardiogenic shock state, but really without any clinically significant pulmonary findings. So really an isolated cardiac manifestation of COVID-19. Yeah, and I'll add that I find that actually even more fascinating given the RV findings. I took care of a lot of COVID patients on ECMO, off ECMO, and we were using a lot of high-pressure mode settings like APRV. And one thing that I noticed with many of these patients was this dilated, overworked RV against these pulmonary pressures that were usually a combination of hypoxia-induced pulmonary vasoconstriction. And so I was kind of expecting to see a true COVID mixed picture with a CT scan demonstrating tons of infiltrates, this ARDS-looking COVID lung. And now I'm seeing, wow, this is almost getting more cardiac-focused and more away from a pulmonary circuit problem. Yeah, and I think this is a great time to review our five steps of thinking about myocarditis that we talked about back in our myocarditis case discussion. And Travis, do you remember the five steps? That's a great question, Ahmed. If I remember correctly, the five principles of myocarditis from your earlier podcast were number one, build a clinical suspicion. Number two, decide on an endomyocardial biopsy. Number three, manage the acute cardiac injury. Number four, manage the chronic cardiac sequelae. And then number five was treat the myocarditis. And Travis, in this situation, I think acutely, we've got to manage the acute cardiac injury. And Zach, your training track is going to take you to advanced heart failure training and critical care fellowship. And I'd love your thoughts on when in general, uh, Swan-Gans catheter would be helpful to tailor therapy. 
I mean, I think that's a great question. A lot of the evidence for PA catheters and whether or not to use them is not actually in the types of patients that we're discussing right now. So probably the most commonly quoted study, whether or not PA catheters are beneficial, is a trial from 2005 called the ESCAPE trial. And that showed that there was really no benefit in using a Swan-Gans catheter, but there were more line-related complications, things like infections. And so I think swans fell out of favor for a while. But as with any type of clinical evidence, I think it's important to understand the population that was studied and see how they fit your population. The ESCAPE trial were decompensated heart failure who could not have been on any milrinone, which is an ionotrope, an ionodilator, had cutoff levels for if they have ever had dobutamine or dopamine, and also required clinical equipoise from the physician taking care of them, meaning that the doctors weren't blinded, and if they didn't feel like they could manage a patient without a swan, they weren't enrolled in the trial. So I think the patient Travis is describing is very different. They're on vasopressors. They have profound multi-organ dysfunction. And so if, if you're concerned, is this patient cold and wet, warm and wet? That's already somewhat answered by your physical exam here. But I think the benefit you really gain is how sick is this patient and how can we tailor therapy? On that echo, we have evidence that there's some significant RV dysfunction. And so getting numbers may also help influence if you're going to upgrade to mechanical circulatory support or something else like that, that may really help guide you. It may also help guide volume status, especially in a patient where you have kidney dysfunction and you're not sure, are they dry? How wet are they if they're wet? What is their cardiac index and how aggressively do we need to optimize? Are we not getting by on medicines? And so I think if you have patients who are truly in cardiogenic shock or uh, especially in patients who might have a mixed picture and you really have to tease out how much of your picture is cardiogenic, how much is uh, distributive shock or if, is there a septic shock picture, I really think Swan-Gans catheters can be invaluable. Yeah, and Zach, I looked into the ESCAPE trial after we had a similar discussion in the fellow's office. And correct me if I'm wrong, but an exclusion for this trial to determine whether or not swans are useful included acute decompensated heart failure requiring PA catheter. It blows my mind. You're essentially excluding patients that you know a swan is going to be useful. And then this trial is being cited to say that we don't need swans for any patient. And so I think it is really helpful to go through that. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I think the way to think about that trial is these are patients on your regular nursing floor with decompensated heart failure. Does a swan add incremental benefit? I think the answer is no. But if you're in a CICU setting and you have a patient who's in shock, I think that's where you, you really gain benefit. So Travis, with that in mind, how did your team end up managing his cardiogenic shock picture? As Zach just mentioned, our first question was, how much support does he need? And we used the clinical picture, given how cool he was, the central venous saturation, to really delineate that medications in terms of inodilators. Obviously, we couldn't use vasodilators because he was on pressors, just were not going to work. And so immediately, we escalated to the next step, which would be mechanical support. And we actually convened what we have at the Cleveland Clinic, and I'm sure many hospitals have as our shock team, and with a thorough discussion between the CICU attending, the interventional staff, and then the heart failure surgeon on call, we came to the conclusion that actually in terms of mechanical support, some of the devices that provide less cardiac output in terms of impella or balloon pump were not going to be sufficient either. And so we actually escalated directly to ECMO, given how sick this patient was and the fact that we just did not think 
our medications or the other devices would provide sufficient support. That's great. It sounds like really what you wanted to make sure that your strategy addressed was need for LV support, need for RV support, but not necessarily need for oxygenation. But of course, the benefits of VA ECMO are the ability to activate it quickly, urgently, and without delay, because of course, protecting from end organ injury is the primary goal here. The downsides of VA ECMO, and, and maybe Dan can speak to this more, are while you support systemic perfusion, you do profoundly increase LV afterload because you're pushing against the LV itself, and thereby you also increase LV filling pressures and can induce pulmonary edema, and it decreases the ability of the LV to recover. As Dr. Soltes says, when considering mechanical circulatory support, you've got three goals, save the patient, save the heart, save a life. And what he means by that, save the patient is activate the strategy you need ASAP so that you can protect the end organs because they end up determining the morbidity and mortality in the long run. Save the heart is eventually find a way to unload the left ventricle so that way you can have cardiac recovery and then save a life, of course, is bridging to recovery durable device or a transplant. Yes, I totally agree, Amit. You've got to really think about that left ventricle. Just imagine what's going to happen if you're shoving a lot of nice red oxygenated blood up into that ventricle, and then your ventricle is poopy to begin with, so it's not really fighting back at you. You're going to basically overwhelm the ventricle if some blood is actually getting by and not going through the ECMO circuit and going through the RV and all the way to the LV. That blood will pool in the LV and potentially can increase the left ventricular and diastolic pressures. And if you increase those left ventricular and diastolic pressures, you're going to end up squeezing off all of those endocardial blood vessels. And when you do that, you can make the entire left ventricle ischemic. And when you make the left ventricle ischemic, it's going to be poor at getting blood out. And so you end up in this vicious cycle where the intra-cavity left ventricular pressures just skyrocket and you really destroy the heart. That's why this idea of left ventricular venting is talked about a lot with ECMO. Not every patient needs venting, and it's a little bit controversial about how you decide if the left ventricle needs venting. But you can do certain strategies to either make a decision up front and say this left ventricle is so non-functional, we definitely need to vent it. Or you could say, I'll have a swan in and I'll follow my wedge pressures. And if I note that my wedge pressures are continuing to rise, getting to dangerous levels, then I know I have to deploy a vent strategy. There are different vent strategies that you can use. And Dan Burkhoff talks a lot about this from Columbia. You can use medications like dobutamine or inotropes to kind of help the LV pump a little bit better. You can use balloon pump strategies to help offload some of the afterload with the left ventricle. You can use impellas, which are transaxial pumps that go through the aortic valve and help extract blood from the ventricle and put it into the aorta. Many different strategies have been used. And you can even use just a surgically placed catheter into the left ventricle through the apex just to offload some of the blood so that it doesn't sit in the left ventricle. This is a huge discussion and something that we'll touch upon in future episodes. But Travis, did you use a strategy for left ventricular venting in this particular patient? Sure, Dan. So we did actually. And he had a femoral impella placed at the time of ECMO cannulation for left ventricular support. Yeah, that's excellent. And actually, we utilized that strategy in our patient, Chaz Miller, back in our myocarditis patient episode, that Ecpella configuration can be extremely helpful, particularly when it works well and you have less complications from dual mechanical circulatory support devices. I'll add that the only downside of uh, femoral VA ECMO and femoral impella in these patients can be that some of them have a longer duration to recovery. 
or the next step. And so if you anticipate a longer time, then you may want to tailor the therapy that will allow for simultaneous rehabilitation. We had an example of a case, Travis, that you and I took care of, the young gentleman who had uh, viral lymphocytic myocarditis who was initially placed on VA ECMO with intratic balloon pump. But when it became clear that his time to recovery was going to be prolonged, that we had actually swapped those out for an axillary 5.5 impella with a Protect Duo RVAD. So everything from the upper extremities to help the patient ambulate and recover from a physical therapy standpoint. You bring up a very interesting point with some of these patients that not all patients are intubated and sedated when they're on ECMO or when they're on these mechanical devices. They can be awake, they can talk to you, and you can actively do the rehabilitation process while they're still recovering and still receiving some of that temporary mechanical support. It can be quite striking when you see a patient with all this support and they can talk to you. No, you're exactly right, Zach. And actually, in this instance, this patient was not intubated. And as I'd mentioned earlier on the vital section, he was on Romer the entire time, although he was tachypneic. And as we talked about in the CT scan, there was really no lung parenchymal disease. Even while he had ECMO and Impella, he was actually extubated, talking to us, able to participate in rehabilitation throughout his hospital course. So fascinating. Anyways, tell us what happened next. I'm like going crazy. <laughs> So next, he underwent endomyocardial biopsy, which demonstrated interstitial inflammation consisting predominantly of lymphocytes. So essentially lymphocytic myocarditis. And then on electron microscopy, we actually found viral particles inside the myocardium. We actually demonstrated coronavirus particles inside the sarcoplasmic reticulum next to the mitochondria. Wow, that's incredible. There have been case reports of COVID-19 associated myocarditis in the past, but the adjudication of what was going on within the heart muscle itself, whether there was direct viral injury or an immune phenomenon, were not necessarily clear. But in this case, Travis, it sounds like you've very clearly demonstrated the presence of SARS-CoV-2 variants within the myocytes. That's correct, Amin. And actually, at this point in May, this had not been demonstrated yet. And so as you were talking about earlier, in terms of myocardial injury from coronavirus, it's multifactorial. There's a large component of this hyperinflammatory response. And we all suspected that there was direct viral infiltration and toxicity, but it had not been demonstrated yet. So we know how you supported the patient from a mechanical circulatory support perspective, but how did you manage this patient for the actual inflammation and viral trigger? Great question, Ahmed. So I think now we know much more, but at the time, we didn't even really fully comprehend the benefit of steroids and coronavirus. After much discussion, we actually ended up using tocilizumab, which is an IL-6 antagonist, and then steroids and IVIG. And I fully appreciate that at the time, the discussion of steroids in COVID-19 inflammatory syndrome was quite controversial, especially with observational reports earlier in the pandemic that seemed to be associated with mortality. Uh, actually, recently, there's an NEGM article, the recovery trial, that showed there was a slight mortality benefit with the use of dexamethasone in patients hospitalized with a COVID-19 illness. But how did your patient do with tocilizumab, methylprednisolone, and IVIG? So it was really actually quite dramatic response, something I've never seen before. But within two to three days, he was actually able to be weaned off the ECMO and the mechanical circulatory support. And then within five days, he was actually off all IV medications, including all his inodilators. And so quite dramatic response and really very precipitous recovery, much quicker than a lot of us were expecting. This is really fascinating. Cardio nerds have been covering the COVID crisis and pandemic really from the beginning. 
And I remember as we planned out our episodes, we kind of talked about like, what is going to be the cardiac manifestation of COVID? And we were thinking, is it going to be similar to influenza with a lot of type 2 MIs? Is there going to be a myocarditis picture? And then we were hearing there is a myocarditis picture, but it's unclear if there's actually viral particles that are infiltrating the myocardium. Maybe this is a wash of inflammatory markers just totally rocking the heart. And we had talked to Dr. Nuriel from Columbia talking about direct viral myocarditis with viral particles actually getting into the myocardium versus inflammatory state and kind of tracking the inflammatory markers with the cardiac damage. Here, you have a patient that's coming in incredibly inflamed, and you also have viral particles in the myocardium. So I would suspect that having viral particles inside of the myocardium is quite indicative of direct myocardial toxicity from the virus. So it's really unbelievable that using anti-inflammatory medications as you did really helped with the rapid improvement with this patient. Or I don't know, maybe it's the body's own ability to go after the virus and take that out of the picture. Maybe that's why you had such a rapid recovery. So just very interesting. Yeah, and it's interesting, Dan, when we did our myocarditis case discussion, we learned that the fulminant myocarditis course in some patients often does pretend more of a complete recovery picture just because it indicates that these are usually young patients with a robust immune response. Travis, I'm so grateful that you and the rest of the clinical team rallied around this patient, did the right things, and he fortunately made a full recovery. But not every patient has this course. So Zach, as a future advanced heart failure, critical care cardiologist, I'd love to hear your thought if we just take ourselves back in the thick of things. The patient was just crashed on ECMO, Impella. We're trying out really experimental therapies with tocilizumab and IVIG, hoping for the best. But what are the different trajectories of these patients and how do you triage the next steps in your mind? Yeah, I'm by no means an expert in these things. But I think in general, whenever you're thinking about employing some sort of mechanical circulatory support approach, the question in your mind always has to be, what is the exit strategy from this? You can't have a patient who lives indefinitely on these percutaneous devices. And so having in mind what the out could be, whether that's a permanent type of support like an LVAD, a heart transplant or recovery is something that needs to be in the forefront of the team's mind. And I think that's the benefit of having something like the shock team where you can have true experts really discuss these things and think about it. As you mentioned, Amit, in myocarditis, at least in my albeit limited experience, these are some of the folks that are most likely to recover. So I think the decision to pull the trigger on early invasive support is relatively easy because we know that a lot of these people have a good shot of recovery. If you're moving along and you don't have recovery, that's when you start to think of things like LVAD or transplant, which have their own considerations. For example, keeping in mind an, an LVAD is only going to support the left ventricle. So if you have somebody who has profound RV dysfunction or high pulmonary pressures that are not going to completely resolve with supporting the LV, an LVAD may not be enough. And you have to think about things like transplant, although that, that also gets difficult. There are ways to more objectively measure this, like PAPI, which is the PA pressure pulsatility index, which helps guide how dysfunctional the right ventricle is. But really, this is a team decision. I don't think there's any one person that ever makes a decision like this, which is why having a heart team approach and having the surgeons, the CICU attending, the advanced heart failure doctor all really discuss this and see what options could be. And Zach, you really touched on two key points that I took away from this case. 
Number one is the fact that the RV function is very important in delineating what type of non-durable mechanical support you want to use. And then, of course, as you mentioned, durable mechanical support. So his RV function being so poor is one of the key factors in helping us go straight to ECMO. And then the second point you mentioned is that these fulminant myocarditis patients, especially these young patients who are otherwise relatively healthy, if you can just bridge them through the acute phase and maintain end organ perfusion and keep their kidneys from taking a too big of a hit, et cetera, they often do quite well. Absolutely. These are really great points, guys, and thanks for going over that. And I appreciate, Zach, you saying that this really is a team decision because there's so many layers of complexity. And an additional layer of complexity for this patient is how the presence of COVID-19 illness impacts transplant candidacy. And I'll be excited to hear more about this perspective from our expert segment, which will be followed after the fellows discussion called the ECPR or Expert Cardionerd Perspectives and Review, not to be confused with extracorporeal cardiopulmonary resuscitation. <laughs> wah, wah. <laughs> Zach. <laughs> Zach, yes. Travis, you guys are stars. This is our first Cardionerd's case report discussion that we've had. I'll give a lot of credit to Amit. He had a dream about this a couple months ago and has been very much obsessed with the idea of starting a case report series. This is really our vision coming to true. We've had so many late night discussions about how this is going to sound and you guys are just amazing. And I think we have the secret sauce going forward to produce as many of these as we can to bring complex cases happening everywhere to everyone so that everyone could really learn and appreciate from our patients and take care of patients going forward in the future. So you guys are amazing. You rock. Zach, you are already a star, as we mentioned. So thanks for coming back. Your expertise is just phenomenal and really enhanced everything. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me, Dan. I've been a huge fan of the Cardinals for such a long time. I'm so happy to be here. And I'd just also like to take this time to really give a shout out and a thank you to everyone else who helped take care of this patient. Because as Ahmed mentioned earlier, this really is a team sport. Specifically, Dr. Albert, who was a heart failure staff, Dr. Starling, and Dr. Krishnaswamy, who was our CICU staff at the time. Now for our ECPR segment, the expert cardionerd perspective and review in which we ask an expert to provide their perspective on the case discussion. As someone planning to pursue a career in advanced heart failure and transplant, I'm particularly excited to introduce Dr. Nir Uriel. Dr. Uriel is an internationally recognized leader in heart failure, mechanical circulatory support, and heart transplantation, and currently serves as director of advanced heart failure and cardiac transplantation at New York Presbyterian. Dr. Uriel is well-published in the area of COVID-related myocardial injury. Please see the links to related articles in the episode description. Let's hear what Dr. Uriel has to say about the case. Hello, Cardionerd. It's very good to be here with you today and to talk a little bit about the case that we just heard from Cleveland Clinic. So before even I'm starting, I want to congratulate the team from Cleveland Clinic of doing such an amazing effort, heroic effort, and saving this patient life, but also uh, to understand the essence of how COVID-19 affects the myocardium. I think right now we are in a very special period of time. In the last six months, we all were exposed to COVID-19 in general, and we, the physician and provider, the nurses that take care of those patients, seen its effect in, in the, all organ of the body, but in specific, 
on the heart. The case that was discussed here uh, emphasized the importance of understanding the mechanism in which COVID-19 can affect our heart. And of course, myocarditis is a key element that needs to be discussed. So in general, I just want to give some brief understanding that whenever we speak about COVID-19 and uh, myocardium, I want us to think about three big things. COVID-19 can affect the myocardium in three elements. One, it can cause some myocardial infarction risk. Second, it can cause some arrhythmia. And third, it can cause heart failure. So how you can do all those different types of cardiovascular manifestation, it's a key to the understanding of this case in general, and even more specifically to what happened to our patient that was described here. Uh, myocardial infarction can, uh, can happen because we have a direct vascular uh, infection from this virus. We have a systemic pro-inflammatory, we have a hypercoagulable state, and we have a sympathetic stimulation and activation that cause a high myocardial oxygen demand. All of that causes to myocardial oxygen supply that is going down, oxygen demand that's going up, and we have a risk of infarction. Similar to that, that's the reason we see a risk of arrhythmia. We have a sympathetic stimulus that is very hot, we have pro-inflammatory effect, we have myocarditis, etc. So all of those are things that can happen. But in this case, we have something else. We had an isolated effect on the heart in this patient. So there was a big question that we always ask since the initiation of this pandemic. When we see myocardial involvement in COVID-19 patients, is it because there is a sympathetic stimulation that causes the myocardial oxygen demand and causes cardiomyopathy? Is it uh, the pro-inflammatory cytokine that creates this enhanced cytokine storm and myocardial depression, or we can see a direct myocardial infection, myocarditis. In this specific case, we learn about a patient that came to the hospital with a myocardial damage that caused him immediately to crash into cardiogenic shock and require mechanical circulatory support that we are going to address soon. But again, we learn on the importance whenever we see a myocarditis, of performing endomyocardial biopsy. I think the key element here that the endomyocardial biopsy was performed, but not only that it performed an identified lymphocytic myocarditis, the electron microscope that was used here helped us identify actually viral body inside the myocardial tissue. Of course, uh, in the second that we see myocarditis effect like that, then we can target therapy. And it's beautifully described here. The patient was treated with steroid. He treated with tocolizumab. And of course, today, probably he would have been treated also with remdesivir that we know that can slow the replication of the virus. But the shocking is that when identification of the cause of the myocardial depression care and treatment of those cause using steroid and tocolizumab, there was an immediate reverse of the process. And as described in the case, within two days, the patient was off ECMO and Impella. And within five days, he was off all inotropes. So this is a classical example of how important it is to diagnose myocarditis, to understand that COVID-19, it's not only a pro-inflammatory cytokine effect on the myocardium, it's actually can be a direct myocardial infection with virus body inside the myocardium and the importance of performing endomyocardial biopsy in those cases. Another key element of the success of this case is something that is much broader than only COVID-19. 
is that the early intervention of mechanical circulatory support in patients with cardiogenic shock. We all were trained that door-to-balloon is a key element to keep the myocard in ischemic episode. Similar to that, we are learning more and more. The door-to-unload is probably a key element to treat patients with cardiogenic shock. The left ventricle that is affected now by an extreme situation causing him to fail, if it's myocarditis or other cause of cardiogenic shock, needs some help. In this specific case, the immediate help and the reperfusion of all organs was provided using ECMO. However, as ECMO known and described very nice in this case presentation, it's associated with increasing the afterload and the ventricle that is already struggling due to the myocarditis is failing to push his blood against the flow or the extreme afterload that is happening. As as, uh, done in this case beautifully, unload of the left ventricle was achieved utilizing an impeller device simultaneous with the ECMO device. This is actually was a key to achieve recovery in this heart. So in order to achieve recovery, we definitely need to treat the myocarditis by giving anti-inflammatory medication and, if possible, antiretroviral medication. But we also need to treat the mechanical situation that's associated with it, unload the left ventricle, and provide the body the support that it's needs. Again, this was a case that whoever listened to it, smile and know that medicine can help people. We are in a period of time that it's very hard uh, to see only the bright side of COVID. But what we can learn from this case, that if you utilize the skills that we have as a heart failure and cardiologist, and together with the knowledge that accumulate in six months only by doing this virus, we can have excellent results and save patient life. So again, congratulations to the team in Cleveland Clinic. This was an absolutely amazing case to understand the myocardial injury associated with COVID-19 and how to address cardiogenic shock in general in patients coming with myocarditis. Thank you very much.